Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, The Gift of Righteousness. All right. Well, in the first part of Paul's letter uh, to the church at Rome, you know by now that Paul has assumed the role of a skilled prosecuting attorney. And so in the first three chapters of Roman well, of Romans, Paul has kind of set forth a courtroom for us. By way of review, uh, here's what we're going to show you for your first point. Um, this is what you learned last uh, time we were together two weeks ago. And that is in the courtroom of Romans 1 through 3, we saw God as the judge. We saw mankind, that's you and I, as the defendant. And we saw Paul as the prosecutor. And so in chapters 1 through 3, Paul, the prosecutor, has given his evidence against mankind. And the conclusion is very sobering. You say, well, what's the conclusion? The conclusion we're going to look at now in chapter 3, verse 19. So please look at chapter 3, verse 19. Here is the conclusion of the evidence that Paul brings against all humanity. He says in verse 19, now we know that whatever the, what's the word? The law. Okay, that's, remember this? That's either the law in code or that's the law in conscience. That's either the law um, that's been written down on paper or that's the law that's been written down um, on our hearts. And so whether you're talking to a Jew or to a Gentile, it's talking about God's law there. And so let's back up again. Look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. By the way, how many people are under God's law? All. Everybody. And that's why he says that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become, what's the word? Guilty before God. And so because everyone has committed of crimes against God and man because everybody has sinned, every mouth has been shut. In other words, there's no more excuses. There's no excuse that you and I can ever give to a holy God because we've sinned. We've broken his law. We are guilty before him. Now, there are still people who protest. And by the way, if you were uh, to go out this afternoon and ask 10 different people if you're going to heaven or hell, um, normally the, the answer you get is either I don't know or I'm going to heaven, and you ask them why are you going to heaven, and eight or nine times out of ten, you will get some kind of answer like this. Well, I'm a pretty good person. God will accept me. Right? So people are still protesting against what Paul has said clearly in the word of God. Ladies and gentlemen, the world believes the exact opposite of Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. And so in chapters 1, 2, and 3, every mouth has been stopped. The whole world is guilty before a holy God. But still some people will protest, and they'll say stuff like this. Well, come on. You know, why do you got to be so serious all the time? Right? If I turn over a new leaf, God will accept me, right? Come on. Lighten up. Right? If I try harder to live right. God will accept me, right? Well, let's find out what God's word says. Look at verse 20. He says, therefore, by the, check this out, deeds of the law. In other words, by turning over a new leaf or trying harder to live right. Okay, so therefore, by the deeds of the law, how much flesh? Help me out. No flesh. Everybody, please say no flesh. Go ahead. You know what no flesh means? No flesh. There's no excuses, ladies and gentlemen. People think, yeah, when I, when I die, I'm going to walk up to God. He's got some explaining to do. You ever see uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark when they looked at the Ark of the Covenant, what happened to those people? Let me tell you, you don't strut into a holy God's presence thinking you're all that. 
and you don't even have any kind of um, objection that, well, I've lived a pretty good life. He's got to accept me. No. No flesh will be justified by the deeds of the law. Now, here's why. It's because we've all been infected by sin. Listen, listen. We all already have been infected by sin. Therefore, no amount of good deeds can cure us of our incurable disease of sin. Except for one, which I'll talk about later on. And so allow me now to switch the illustration from the courtroom to a doctor's office. Imagine if an, an oncologist invited you into his office. He's got bad news, okay? Everybody hates if this ever happens to you. And so you're sitting there, and the doctor looks at you, and he says, well, you know, it's true. You, you've been diagnosed with a malignant tumor. And it's an aggressive form of cancer. It's spreading throughout your body. Okay, now, if that was the diagnosis, here's what the doctor, any doctor worth his salt, unless he's a quack, right? Here's what no doctor would ever say. He would not say something like this. Well, here's how we're going to treat or cure this malignant tumor. I, I'm prescribing to you a healthier diet. Uh, for the next six months, I want you to eat a diet that's low in cholesterol and saturated fats. And, and at the end of six months, you come back and see me, and we'll see where we're at. Can you imagine if a doctor told you that? After just being diagnosed with an aggressive, malignant tumor that's spreading throughout your body, you know what you would say or maybe scream across the desk? You'd say, doctor, it's too late. The cancer's already inside of me. You said it's spreading. I've never had any medical uh, uh, training in my life, but even I know that just eating right won't take my cancer away. And you'd be right. No, the doctor is probably, most likely, most definitely going to prescribe something way more radical than just eating right. He's probably gonna prescribe chemotherapy, radiation, maybe even invasive surgery, doing whatever it takes to cut out the cancer. Okay, so here's my point if you're taking notes. We all have been diagnosed with the cancer of sin and no amount of good deeds will ever cure us. You guys see what I'm saying here? Listen, just like someone who's been diagnosed with a malignant tumor doesn't need to hear, just eat right, you'll be fine. So those of us, which is all of us, who've been diagnosed with spiritual cancer, we don't need to hear some religious person saying, just live right, you'll be fine. Which, by the way, is the message of many churches today. I've heard religious leaders say, if they just keep the Ten Commandments, they'll be fine. They have spiritual cancer. It's already in them. It's spreading. No, we need something way more radical than just living right. And by the way, the great physician has provided something very radical Paul's going to write about it now in verses 21 through 31. Okay, so now if you're looking at verse 21, just say amen, so I know you're there. Okay, you ready? Here we go. But now, change of thought, the righteousness of God, look at this, apart from the law. Okay, in other words, apart from living right or doing good works. It's exactly what it means. And so now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and by the prophets. And so God has revealed a radical way to cure us of spiritual cancer, apart from us living right. God has revealed an amazingly radical remedy to make us right with him apart from the deeds of the law. And by the way, this is not gonna be just a New Testament revelation. He says that it was revealed also in the law and the prophets. Did you read that? Okay, in other words, it's not just revealed in the New Testament. 
It has, has also been already revealed in the Old Testament in places like Genesis 15 and Psalm 32. Two passages, by the way, that Paul's going to tackle next week when we get into chapter 4. And so we'll, we'll save that for next week. But back to the question. How can a holy God make sinners like you and I right with him apart from us keeping his law? How in the world can he cure us of spiritual cancer? Look at verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through, what's the word? Faith. Okay, so I'm going to say that again. Now, I really want everyone to say it like you mean it. Even the righteousness of God through faith. faith. Does it say faith and works? Uh, I don't see that. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to how many people? All and on all who believe. For there is no difference for how many have sinned? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I love the way the New Living Translation words, verses 21 through 23. Check it out, please. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. All right, so how are we made right with God? You guys can answer out loud. Okay, you ready? How are we made right with God? I want you to answer yes or no. Are we made right with God by vowing to turn over a new leaf? Help me out. No. Are we made right with God by um, committing to, to, to live right the, for the rest of our life? Yes or no? No. How are we made right with God? Yes, I underlined it for you in case you were wondering. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And by the way, it's not faith in faith. Your faith is only as good as the object you put your faith in. It's faith in Jesus Christ. So what in the world is faith? We'll define it for you. It means, according to Strong's concordance, persuasion, that is, credence, moral conviction. I love this. Especially reliance upon Christ for salvation. That's our message. I love the word reliance. You see, because faith is not mental assent. I'll illustrate it this way. Um, probably many of you have seen this illustration, but it's so good, I'll use it again. All right. So here we have a chair. And right now, I'm saying to all of you, I believe this chair exists. I believe this chair is strong. In fact, I believe that this chair is so strong that it can actually hold my weight. I'm saying it, I'm saying it to all of you, okay? Right now, is that chair supporting my weight, yes or no? Nope. In fact, is this chair doing anything good for me right now? No. Okay, so I'll try this. I really believe in this chair. In fact, I believe in this chair so much that I believe it can support my weight. Is this chair now supporting my weight? No. By the way, did you see my socks? I'll show you guys. What do you think? <laughs> a gift from a friend. It's not in the notes. But anyway, is this chair now supporting my weight? Yes or no? No. It's not until I say, I believe in this chair. I believe this chair is strong. In fact, I believe this chair is so strong. You know what? I'm going to sit in it. And I believe it's going to completely support my weight. And now is the chair supporting my weight, yes or no? In fact, this chair is a great benefit to me right now. You see this? It's the same thing with Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, there are so many people who say, I believe that a man named Jesus lived. 
I believe even that he was the son of God. I believe that he died for the sins of the whole world. In fact, I stood in church for 18 years. And every single Sunday, I recited the Nicene Creed. And by the way, what the Nicene Creed has to say about Jesus is exactly the Jesus of the Bible. And so I would say every single week, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary, and he became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered. He died. He was buried. On the third day, he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Let me tell you something. That's really good stuff. And I said it every single week of my life. But here's my point. Did you know that you can say those words in your head and not know Christ in your heart? You can say, I believe in Jesus. You can even say, I believe he's the son of God. You can even, believe, I be you can even say, I believe he died for the sins of the world. But until you come to the place, and here's your verse. It's John 1.12. Listen, listen. For as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. It is not until you receive Christ. Listen, I love this phrase. You've heard it before. As your personal Lord and Savior. You know why I say personal? Because it's got to be for you. You see, my wife grew up in the Lutheran church. She hardly ever went to church. And if you would have asked her in her BC days, she would have said, of course Jesus is the Son of God. Of course he died for the sins of the world. But it wasn't until she put her faith, not mental assent, but her faith. In other words, it wasn't until she said, you know what? Jesus didn't just die for the whole world. He died for me. And I receive him and I put faith in him and his work on the cross for me. That she'll tell you that it wasn't until that day that she got saved. It wasn't until I went from mental assent of just saying words in my head to receiving Jesus Christ personally into my own heart, trusting in him and his payment for me, that I was saved. Do you guys understand this? Listen, there's so many people that are saying words. Now, there's nothing wrong with reciting the Nicene Creed. If you have received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, it's a confession of what you believe. And so what is faith? Faith is persuasion. That is credence. That is moral conviction, especially, here it is, reliance upon Christ and Christ alone for salvation. Look at verse 24. He says, being, what's the word? Please underline justified. Paul gives us these amazing terms in this letter that I'm having you underline because I'm going to define them so we're all recipients of God's truth the way it was meant in the original manuscript. So being justified freely by his grace through the, please underline, redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, I want everybody right now to look up at me. I want everybody to just smile, okay? It won't hurt you. You can do it. Some of you still won't smile. I don't understand this. It's not that hard. Okay, just smile. Because what we're doing here is we're reading some really good news. In fact, this is the best news you'll ever hear in your life. And so I want, I'm going to read it again, and I want you to read it in your heart, but I want you to read verse 24 as you smile. Okay, you ready? Are you smiling? I have a hard time talking when I'm smiling. So, so here we go, verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, this is the best news ever, right? 
You say, why is this such good news? Here's why. Because if you've turned from your sins the best way you know how, and you have received Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you're justified. You say, well, what does that mean? I'll define that word for you. Uh, Ryrie actually will define that word for you. In the Ryrie Study Bible, it means it was a legal term meaning to secure, I love it, a favorable verdict. It means to acquit, to vindicate. It means to declare righteous. So I'm going to go back to the courtroom illustration. Paul said, all of us are guilty before God. Why? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's glory is revealed in his law. His character is revealed in his law. All of us have fallen short of that perfect standard. And so we're guilty. And so we're standing before the holy God of the universe, right, as sinners. And as we stand before the holy God of the universe, right, we hear the sentence, guilty. What's the verdict? Death. It's death. Not just physical death. Because God did not just make us physical beings. He also breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. And so there is a part of you, inside of you, that will never die. And part of you, inside of you, will live forever in one of two places, heaven or hell. And so it's not just physical death. It's, listen to this, it's nothing less than eternal separation from a holy God in a place called hell. Some people can't stand right now that I'm saying the word hell. In many, many thousands of churches today on, a, on this Sunday morning, they won't say hell because they say that, 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 that it offends people. We don't need to talk about that. Well, what in the world did Jesus save us from? Hell. He saved us from hell. We got to talk about it. Jesus talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. Why? Because he loves you and he doesn't want you to go there. And so the, 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 the verdict is this, eternal separation from God in a place called hell. But how many of you guys believe God's a God of grace? And so here's what happened. I don't know how it happened in your life. Maybe it was a neighbor. Maybe it was a friend at work. Maybe it was a Facebook post. Maybe it was a song. Maybe it was um, a relative at a party. Whatever it was, whoever God used in your life at some point, we heard the good news of the true gospel of grace. That God became a man. He wrapped up his divinity and humanity, never ceasing to be God, the eternal God, but adding to his deity humanity. And this man, who was 100% God and 100% man, lived an absolutely morally perfect life. A life you and I could never live. He met all the just demands of the law. And then, at the end of his life, he willingly, they didn't force him, he willingly laid down his life and he died. Why? Because the wages of sin is, he did it for you, he did it for me. Three days later, he pops up alive from the dead. He says, come to me, and those of us, best way we know how, turn from our sins. I'll say it again, because I really want it to get down your, your, your mind and heart. And we receive Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior. You know what happens then? We're standing before a holy God, right? Maybe our knees are knocking together, whatever. And all of a sudden we hear this. The verdict's been changed. What? Yeah, the verdict's been changed. Why? Because you put your faith in my son. You accepted what he did on the cross for you. And so now I, the holy God of the universe, give you a complete acquittal. I completely forgive you. And not only that, as of right now, I declare you righteous. That's good news, right? Hey, that's the best news of all. 
Now, some of you are still not very excited. You know why? Because you've been hearing this for three, four decades. And you lost the joy of your salvation. Shame on all of us who've lost the joy of our salvation. Shame on all of us who don't still get excited about a complete acquittal from eternal damnation. What? Yes, that's what he's done. Nothing less. Have you guys ever watched a, a, a courtroom uh, case on TV or actually been there for the verdict when the judge says, bam, not guilty? Have you ever seen the reaction of the defendant? It goes from tears to some, some of them fall on the floor. They're giving hugs, right? Hey, if you really believed that you're a sinner on your way to hell, but you believe because Christ died for you and you've received him as your savior, that God's changed the verdict and now God says, complete acquittal. You'd be hugging people, kissing people, crying, falling on the ground. Why? Because all now that you're going to get is not separation from God. All you're going to get now is eternal bliss in the kingdom of God. Why? Because of God's grace, his grace. Let's all thank him right now, please. Whether you feel like it or not, can we just thank God? We've been justified. We've been declared righteous. And nothing can change that. See, some of you guys have bought into this poor theology. Yeah, I'm justified, but man, if I screw up, he's going to damn me to hell. You need to change your bad theology. You need to put your full trust in the promises of God. What's the promise? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. There are no born-again Christians in hell. Why? Because they're so good? No, because Jesus said they will never perish. And so I say, Lord, you know what? I haven't lived the life, but you lived it for me. And you know what, Lord? I deserve death, but you died for me. I receive you. And based on your word, I will never perish. I will never perish. Then you accept that and you move on to sanctification, which is later on in Romans. And so justification, man, it's so exciting to me that the verdict has changed and you say, well, how can God change his verdict? How can we get a radical verdict? Even though we've broken his law, it's right there at the end of verse 24. It's through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption, that's why. That's why we're going to heaven. You say, what's redemption? Well, define that one. It means a releasing or a freeing affected by payment of a ransom. Abraham Lincoln is my favorite president. Now, I, you ask my kids, I go back and forth. It used to be John Adams after I read his biography. Now it's Abraham Lincoln again. Whenever I'm in Washington, D.C., I think I've been there five, six times, I always make it a point to run up the steps to the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, yeah, the, the uh, Lincoln Memorial. I see the big statue. What I like better than the big statue is I like turning left and I like reading the Gettysburg Address there engraved on the wall. Remember the first time I did that? I'm an alien. For those of you guys who know me, I don't, I just don't cry. I don't know if something's wrong with me. Pray for me. Okay? But when I read the Gettysburg Address, tears welled up in my eyes. I'm like, what's going on? I got a heart. Like, wow. So anyway, I just love Abraham Lincoln. My wife and girls and I have been to the Ford's Theater um, where Lincoln was shot, we went across the street to the little house where he died. The first time I did that, went across the street, went up the steps, went into the room where he died, I felt God's presence all over the place. I can't explain it. I don't know why. Maybe it was just God saying to me, you know, that's a president. He wasn't perfect, but he was a man of character, and he stood for what was right, I love the fact that before Lincoln became president, he said, and I quote, government cannot endure permanently, which is half slave and half free. He said that when it wasn't popular, by the way. 
I love the fact that when 11 southern states seceded from the union, including our state of Florida, and by the way, they formed a confederate nation, a rebel nation, a nation that boasted in those 11 southern states of four million slaves, and they boasted about it, that Lincoln was willing to go to war against that rebel nation. I love a president who does what's right even though it's hard, even though it's not popular. I love a president who does what's right even, that, even if that means great sacrifice. I love his Emancipation Proclamation, which legally freed the slaves. I love the fact that on December 6, 1865, eight months after Lincoln was assassinated, thank God the 13th Amendment was ratified to our Constitution, which totally abolished slavery in our land, though we, by the way, have a long way to go in our race relations. When I think of Lincoln, I think of redemption. Did you guys know that 23,000 Union soldiers died in the Battle of Gettysburg alone? One battle, 23,000 men in the North died. That's part of a total number of 110,000 Union soldiers who gave their life in battle during the Civil War. Not to count the tens of thousands of other Union soldiers who died of other causes during the war. That's quite a price to pay to free the slaves. But a price was paid. What was the price? Price of blood. When I think of Lincoln, I think of another story. And by the way, it's probably apocryphal, but it's still a good story anyway. It, it illustrates biblical truth. The story goes something like this. Abraham Lincoln is said to go to the slave market. And up on the slave block was a young woman who was being sold. Chains on her neck, hands and feet. And so all these white men were placing their bids to buy this young lady. And Abraham Lincoln decided to place a bid. He won the bid. He purchased her freedom. He approached her and he said, young lady, you're free. And she was confused. What do you, what do you mean I'm free? He said, I mean what I say, you're free to go. She said, you mean I can go wherever I want to go? Yes, you can go wherever you want to go. You mean I can be whoever I want to be? Yes, you can be whoever you want to be. And it said that she began to cry, and she looked at Lincoln and she said, if it's okay, I'd like to just stay with you. See, here's the point. She saw the kindness of a man who purchased her just to set her free. So she wanted to stay with him. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ came down from heaven to pay the price of our redemption, the price he gave his life. He poured out his life's blood in order to purchase you and I to set us free. Free from what? Free from sin. Free from hell. Free from eternal condemnation. Listen, not just in, this, in, in the next life, in this life. Some of you right now, you're all bound up in some type of sexual addiction, some type of chemical addiction, some type of, 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 um, of, of addiction to something else, some other kind of sin, right? You're all bound up. But, but here's the thing. You're not walking in the freedom that Jesus already paid for. And if you'll just surrender your life to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's power will help you break those chains and help you walk in the freedom that's already been purchased for you. But you got to surrender the Holy Spirit. You're trying to break the chains in your own strength. You and I can't do it in our own strength. We need supernatural help. But it's when we finally come to the place where we realize that Jesus paid the price just to set us free that we see the kindness of the one who gave his life and with tears streaming down our face, we say, I know I can go wherever I want to go right now. I'm totally free. I can do whatever I want to do, be whoever I want to be. But if it's okay, I'd like to just stay with you. Why? He's so good. He's so great. 
if it's, if it's okay, Lord, I just want to be a lifelong follower of you. Why? To, to earn your way into heaven? No. It's because of what he did. Do you guys understand how kind and loving and gracious the Lord is? And so speaking of this kind one, Jesus, Paul goes on to say in verse 25, he says, whom God set forth as a, here's another big theological word, but it'll change your world, so please underline the word propitiation. And I know some of you are thinking right now, I don't get theology, I don't understand all this. We're going to define this for you. It'll change your life. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through, what? There it is again. To demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. I'll come back to that. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of those who have, what's the word? There it is again. Faith in Jesus. Okay, propitiation, a powerful word. What does it mean? It means relating to and appeasing or expiating. And it was used to describe the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. When the Old Testament was originally written, it was written in what language? Hebrew. But then later on, before Jesus even came to the earth, they translated the Old Testament into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. Jesus had the Greek Old Testament. And when you go and you read about the Ark of the Covenant in the Greek Old Testament, the word for the lid of the Ark of the Covenant is the same word that the Apostle Paul uses right here in verse 25. And so let me explain this. Propitiation. Lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Once a year, if you're new to the Bible, once a year in the Old Testament, the Jewish high priest would go to the temple... And then he would enter behind the veil, okay? Now, check this out. He goes into the holy place, and then only once a year, he actually has the nerve to pull back the veil and walk into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelt. And by the way, it's, it's said, it's not in the Bible, it's said that they would tie a rope around his leg once a year when he went into the Holy of Holies just in case he fell over dead. <laughs> some people talk about, as I said earlier, I'm going to go to heaven and God's got some explaining to do. You don't even know God. You have no clue of how holy and righteous he is. He is a holy God, and we do not strut into his presence. Six things have I hate. Have I hated, God says. Number one, a haughty look. People think they're so proud, arrogant, always boasting. They don't know God. They don't know him at all. And once a year, the high priest would go into this holy of holies, and he'd have blood. It's the only way he's going in there. He'd have blood, and he would sprinkle the blood, first of a bull, on the Ark of the Covenant. The bull's blood was for his own sins. Later on, he'd come back in after killing two goats, uh, actually killing one goat, letting another one free, uh, but he would take the blood of one of the goats that he killed and go back in and he'd sprinkle it. And the goat's blood was for the, the sin of the people. When he walked into the Holy of Holies, this is what he saw. He saw the Ark of the Covenant. You see the cherubim standing on the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark. And that's our word there in verse, 40, uh, verse 25 for a propitiation. Okay, so he sprinkled the blood on the lid of the Ark. Why did he do that? To make atonement for the sins of the people. The word atonement means to cover. You say, why in the world do you have to kill some little animal and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat? Here's why. Because here's, here's an eternal, eternal principle of God, right? It's found in Hebrews. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. You guys understand why good works will never save anybody? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. By the way, isn't it interesting he sprinkled the blood on the lid of the ark? 
You say, why did he do that? Well, what was under the lid? In the box, the ark, was the Ten Commandments, the two tablets Moses came down from Mount Sinai with. Okay? The Ten Commandments that the people of God had violated. So here's the point. When God, on the Day of Atonement, looked down on the Ark of the Covenant, he didn't see the law that had been broken. He saw the blood that had been shed, and he was appeased satisfied, expiated, and he passed over the sins the people committed. You guys following me here? And it's the same thing in the new covenant. Paul says in verse um, 25 that God set forth Jesus as the propitiation by his blood. Okay, why Jesus? Because it says in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 that that the, it's not possible the blood of bulls and goats could ever take away sins, okay? So all the, the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, they were all a picture of the one who would come later. That's Jesus, the Lamb of God, who doesn't just cover, he takes away the sins of the world. Okay, now follow me here. This is so important. I want you to say amen if you're with me. Amen. Don't miss this. When you come to Christ and you receive him as your personal Lord and Savior... When God looks down on you, he doesn't see his law that you have broken. He only sees the blood, the blood of his son that's been shed. And when God looks down on you and sees the blood, he says, I'm satisfied. I'm expiated. It's a propitiation, and I'll pass over their sins. That's good news, too. We ought to thank God for that. Praise God. Like, thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. You're going to pass over my sins as well because of the blood of Jesus. And so Jesus died in the fullness of time. God's people before his sacrifice, God forgave them based on the future merits of his son. He passed over their sins in times past, as it says there in the verses. Right? They look forward to the sacrifice of his son. All of us in the New Testament age, he forgives us because he looks back on the past sacrifice of his son. Jesus, once for all, slain from the foundation of the world. Look at verse 27 now. Based on everything that Paul said, hey, where is boasting then? <laughs> it's excluded. By what law? Of works, what's the answer? No. I'm going to say that again in case people are listening on the podcast, watching online, others who may right now be thinking about lunch, okay? Tune back into verse 27, and you guys help me out. Of works, what's the word? No. You say, what about James chapter 2? Listen, James chapter 2 is the evidence of our salvation before man. Romans chapter 3 and 4 is the receiving of our salvation from God. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, you can read James 2 later. He says, where's boasting? It's excluded. By what law? Of works? No. By the law of faith. He keeps saying it and saying it and saying it. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law, apart from from turning over a new leaf, apart from trying harder to live right. Here's your next point. If you're taking notes, our justification has nothing, nada, to do with our works and everything to do with Christ's work. Therefore, all boasting is excluded. Let's say this Saturday you decide to go to the beach if the weather warms up. And there you are, you're swimming in the ocean. And as you're swimming, all of a sudden, a riptide takes you under. Unexpected. Anybody ever experienced that, by the way? We were out, uh, I think, four or five years ago, and there was an attorney who was swimming with his son, and rip, a riptide took his life. And so imagine you're out there, and riptide takes you under, right? And all of a sudden, you're struggling, and you swallow a bunch of water. You, you, you're trying to escape the, the, the rip current, and you pop back up for a little while. 
right? And then you're back down again. You can remember somebody said, swim parallel to the shore. And so you start to, you don't even know where the shore is, but you start to try to swim and you're struggling and struggling. You pop back up again. You see the shore, right? But you swallow so much water, you're, you're losing your strength and you're going down. And then I'll, imagine this. All of a sudden you feel the strong arms of a lifeguard lift you up. And the next thing you know, he's bringing you back to shore. All right, when you get to shore, and you catch your breath, what's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to thank that lifeguard. You're going to say something like, man, thank you so much. You saved my life. Now, here's what you're never going to do. As you're out of breath (sighs) on a beach, here's what you're never going to say. You're never going to say to the lifeguard, you know what? I'm a really strong swimmer, and so I could have made it myself. I didn't need your help. (laughs) What? What do you call that? Pride. No. Just like the saved swimmer can only give credit to the lifeguard for his salvation, so the saved sinner can only give credit to Christ for our salvation. He rescued us. He lifted us up. No other reason. Back in the day, I used to go to a very conservative, traditional church, and we would sing hymns. There were no drums allowed in the church because drums were the beat of the devil and whatever. But anyway, we used to sing hymns. And I used to sit in church with my crazy friend. And one of the hymns that we sang was called Come Praise the Lord With Me. And I'm sorry in advance, but it went something like this. It said, uh, come praise the Lord with me. Come praise the Lord. Worthy is he to be praised and adored, right? So that's the song we sang. Well, my friend, he didn't sing, come praise the Lord with me. He sang just loud enough for only me to hear him sing this. Come praise me with the Lord. Come praise me. And he'd look over and smile real big, and I would back away because lightning, for sure, (laughs) is going to kill him. Now, In heaven, no one's going to be saying, come praise me with the Lord. Why? Because we had nothing to do with getting up there. We're going to say, come praise the Lord with me. All our boasting is going to be in Christ and in Christ alone. And so Paul wraps it up now in verse 29. He says, or is he God, the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Well, yes, of course. He's the God of the Gentiles also, since there's only one God. (laughs) And look what this one God does. Who will justify the circumcised, that's Jews, by, what's the word? And the uncircumcised, that's Gentiles like most of us, through what? Faith. He says it, says it, says it. And still, there's man-made religions that deny it. I don't understand it. How many times has he said faith alone in this chapter? It's by faith. He says in verse 31, do we then make void the law through faith? Because people are going to complain, well, man, you're just dissing the law. So, man, why should we even have the law? He says, no, certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Okay, and so here's your last point. How in the world did God establish his law? He established his law by making sure its just demands were fully met in Christ. Now, before you pack up, okay, stay with me here. It's so important that you get the last part of this message, okay? How does God establish his law? Torah, Genesis 1, I mean Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All those rules and regulations. How does he establish that if we're saved by faith alone? Here's how. The law demanded that we all live a perfectly moral life. Anybody ever done that? Jesus did. Jesus came, as I said before, wrapped himself in human flesh. He he carried out not just 10, 613 commandments in Torah perfectly. Never had a bad thought, never said a rude word, 
always doing for others. He lived the perfectly moral life that you and I could not live. Jesus met the just demands of the law, and that's how God establishes his law. Then he willingly dies on a cross because the law demands that the wages of sin is death. He didn't die for his own sins. He didn't have any sins. Whose sins did he die for? Ours. Thus, Jesus met the just demands of the law. God established his law. My question is, have you, the best way you know how, turned from your sins and by faith received Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your boss? One of the greatest gifts God can give His children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.